right, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 20 through 24. Deuteronomy 20 through 24. And we'll go ahead and, uh, if we could, just direct your minds to the questions first on chapter 20. Deuteronomy 20, who would speak to the people before going into battle? The priest. And what would exempt a man from military service? Newly married, newly betrothed wife, a new house, a new vineyard, and maybe afraid. How were they commanded to approach a city? Okay. First offer of uh, peace to the city in verse 10, and from which cities would they or could they take the spoil? Okay. Those cities that are far off or far away, and which cities would they utterly destroy? The cities of the land. The cities uh, that they were dictated by God to take uh, the Canaan property, you might say. Deuteronomy chapter 20, we're going to look at <clears throat> several instances of military procedures or military law as they go into battle. Now, these are the chosen people of God, Israel, but they have a certainly a military aspect, a military expedition, if you will, as they go into the land of Canaan. And they're going to have certain laws that they have to adhere to, even in the military expedition that they're required to do to be pleasing to God. It's kind of interesting. We don't really have that concept in our minds as we are people of God, but as we fight battles, certainly we can see some parallels to that. But we're going to see a lot in uh, the next few chapters about the military expedition and how it needed to be done. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 20, Deuteronomy 20, when you go forth into battle, you're going to see horses and chariots and people that are greater than you. It'd be one thing if they had chariots, but they're going to have horses, they're going to have people that are greater and mightier than you, and perhaps you're going to be afraid, but verse 2 says, Draw nigh unto battle, and the priest shall approach and speak unto the people and offer words of encouragement. He's going to say, verse 3, Hear ye, O Israel, as you draw nigh unto battle this day, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be faint-hearted. Do not fear. Do not tremble. Neither be afraid of them. One of our key words for Deuteronomy is the idea of don't be afraid, right? You recall that? Mentioned so many times in the book of Deuteronomy. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. It's interesting that we see the priest drawing near. We don't think typically, as we stated last week, about a priest being related to things of the military. But these are the people of God, aren't they? As they draw near to battle, whose help do they need to appeal to as they go into battle? God. And who is it that goes between God and the people? The priest. So if we think about it like that, it's very, very logical, isn't it? These are a godly people. They're going into battle. They approach uh, the battle with the priest uh, on behalf of the priest to God. Verse 4, for the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies. 
Now, before we get into battle, we have to weed out those that are not going to be necessary, may you say. So the officers, verse 5, say, if anyone has a house, new house, he needs to go and dedicate that house. Verse 5, if you have a new vineyard that uh, you have not partaken of the fruit there, verse 6, you need to go and see about that. If you have a new wife, a wife that's betrothed to you, you need to go in and be with her, verse 7, and also in verse 8, what uh, last group of people does he mention? If, if you're fearful, if you're faint-hearted, you get to go home. It kind of reminds me of, if you remember in Judges 7, there's a judge there that was allowed to do this with his troops. He called the troops down, and who was that? Gideon. Remember how many he wound up with when it was all said and done? About 300? Am I right? 300? Somebody, I didn't go back and check that number, but I'm... How do you fight a battle with... You think about normally people in battle that are going into battle, they would take how many troops, uh, ever how many troops they could get, wouldn't they? They would, if we could get more, we would take more. But not God. God's battle is not that way. Does God need more troops to fight the battle? And think about it that way, it, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? The other factor is in verse 8, the last part of verse 8, he says, Let these faint-hearted go and return to their house, lest he cause his brethren's heart to melt. We've talked about that in several, several weeks ago. We have, uh, in the military, you have physical preparations to make, and you also have mental preparations to make. When you get those, all those physical preparations lined up and... If you don't get the mental preparation right, it does you no good, does it? So in, in verse, the last part of verse 8, we need these faint-hearted to go home lest they affect their brethren and their hearts melt as his does. Verse 9, it shall be when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people that they shall appoint captains of hosts at the head of the people. So we go into battle. First off, we see that the priest is required. So you see God is involved here with the battle uh, through the priest. And the exemption from service is a new house, a new vineyard, new wife, and those that are fearful. Now in verse 10, we have instructions about the cities that they are to take and the cities that they are to completely destroy. If you would recall in our study previously in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we spoke strictly of those cities that were near what we might call Canaan proper. Here he deals more so with those cities that are what we would call far off or maybe in the perimeter area. And he gives instructions beginning in verse 10 how to approach these cities. Verse 10 he says, when you go to one of these cities that is far off, Proclaim peace to the city. And if they do not hear, what instructions follow after that? Besiege it, capture it, whatever's necessary. 
Okay? In contrast to the cities that are near, these cities can, you can take some of the spoil thereof. In verse 12, you will uh, smite every male. Verse 13, but the women, the little ones, in verse 14, and the cattle, all the spoil there you can take and keep. But in verse, or rather, let's summarize that section in verse 15. Thus shalt thou do in all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not the cities of these nations. These are not the cities, that is, that were were instructed in Deuteronomy 7 to utterly destroy. Utterly destroy every living thing in those cities. But these cities that are far off, you can take the, the spoil thereof. Now in contrast, verse 16, But of the cities of these peoples that the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breathes. This is what we referenced in Deuteronomy 7. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, all these ites that exist in the land. And in verse 18, a reminder that you're to utterly destroy them because they, if left there, will cause you to do what? In verse 18. They will influence you to do just like they have done. Influence you with their idolatrous practices. Now in verse 19 through 20, he ends this section by talking about, and you think about it probably, you know, sometimes these paragraphs will maybe seemingly change its subjects entirely. But if you look at it in verse 19 and 20, on the heels of talking about utter destruction, he says, be careful that you save the, fr- the trees, the fruit trees. These are trees that might yield fruit, that might yield fruit for you. So verse 19, he says, do not destroy the trees thereof by wielding an axe against them, for thou, thou mayest eat of them. So these would be beneficial to you as you go into some of these cities. Uh, so there are times we'll see things in a paragraph that will, it's, I liken it perhaps to a conversation. When we have a conversation, something's brought up that makes me think of something else. That's almost the way Moses is doing here. Something's brought up that makes me think of this and makes me think of that, and it follows it uh, quite logically sometimes. So let's look at our outline to catch up here. In verse 10 through 20, we have engagement in warfare. The cities that are far off, distinctly divided from those cities that are near. Cities that are far off proclaim peace. If there is no peace or they don't want to have peace with you, you kill all the males and then take the spoil. The cities that are near, you're to utterly destroy, as Deuteronomy 7 instructs. And then when you besiege a city, it says save the fruit trees. Save those trees. Thinking just for a moment about if you are one of those cities that are far off, you're a citizen of those cities, and you have the people of God approach your city and proclaim peace. We will be peaceful with you if you accept our terms of peace. And Think about what God is doing here in the cities that he is utterly destroying, God's Wrath, God's long suffering has been spent, hasn't it? 
God is no longer willing to discuss being long-suffering with those cities. To utterly destroy them is the instruction. And I think perhaps maybe these cities that are far off have not reached that point yet. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 103, where he talks about the long-suffering of God. Psalm 103, verse 8 and 9, talks about God as long-suffering. He's merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. But, he says, he will not always chide. He will not always warn. And, and that is to say that God is not always going to be long-suffering. There comes a time when God's long-suffering nature is spent. Those cities that are near, it has been spent. Those cities that are far off, perhaps God is still being a little bit more long-suffering to them, perhaps. Any thoughts on chapter 20? Yes. So right there in verses 3 and 4, the, the language is talking about don't be afraid for God fights for you against your enemies. It's real similar to the same words that Moses used over in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6 and also in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And even today we use that passage as one of those passages of comfort. Mm -hmm. Very comforting. We, we need that, don't we? We need that on a daily basis. Okay. Uh, chapter 21. As we move on to chapter 21. The questions, how were they to put away the innocent blood from their midst? What procedure would they follow? Take a heifer. Okay. Go to the closest city. The elders of that city were to take a heifer to the appointed place and then break its neck and then uh, wash their hands over it. Okay. And what had to be done with the captive woman that one might want to marry? Give her an opportunity to mourn. Okay. Give her an opportunity to uh, mourn her family and her past and our purification process here that takes place. And what was the just punishment due a rebellious son? Death by, Death by stoning. Give a New Testament parallel of verse 22 and 23. Galatians 3.13. Deuteronomy 21, if one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it lying in the field, and it be not known who has smitten him. There's a procedure to follow. You go to the nearest city, measure to the nearest city, take a heifer of the herd in verse 3, and then the elders of that city. So you have all these leaders involved in this process. This is what we will see in verse 9 is an innocent, or, or they are making themselves uh, proclaiming themselves innocent of this blood that has been shed. So verse 4, they, the elders come down, they take this, the heifer over the running water, and they break the heifer's neck, they wash their hands of this as if to say, we are innocent of this blood, and all the elders of the city, verse 6, who are near unto the slain shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, 
they shall answer and say, our hands, notice this in verse 7, this is what they're doing by going through this process. Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Forgive, O Lord, thy people, Israel, whom thou hast redeemed. So as we're going into the land of Canaan, there are going to be times when a person will be found that is dead. God knows that. It's not going to be known perhaps who slew this person. So why don't we just let it go? If we don't know who's guilty, why don't we just let it go? Is God concerned about every person's blood? He is, isn't he? In Genesis 9, I think there's a law here that is applied. The covenant to Noah mentions this topic. And being still in effect in this type of sense, Genesis chapter 9 Talking about blood, in verse 4, Genesis 9, verse 4, the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat? And surely your blood, the blood of your lives, will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it at the hand of every man, even at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So there's an application here, I think, of Genesis 9. <clears throat> that God is requiring the people to not ignore someone that's been slain and to be accountable for that. Every person that dies like this, needs to. we need to be aware of that. We don't need to uh, dismiss a person like this. It needs to be accounted for. As uh, I think a lot of application, we can go back to Genesis 9 to see that. So then in verse 10, he talks about the captive woman. If you find a captive woman there that you desire to have for your wife, verse 11, you bring her and you take her to be your wife. And if time goes by and perhaps you are no longer uh, satisfied with her, he says, verse 14, It shall be, if thou have no delight in her, thou shalt let her go, whither she will, but thou shalt not sell her at all for money. Thou shalt not deal with her as a slave, because thou hast humbled her. So we see here that there's a protection here. Let me catch up just a moment on the, uh, on the outline here. Of the unknown murderer, the nearest city, Sorry, I'm not clicking through this fast enough. Nearest city involves the elders. We break the heifer's neck. They proclaim their innocence by doing so. And then we have the marriage of the captive woman. So we look at verse 14. He's no longer pleased with her. And he wants to get rid of her. And perhaps as he's thinking about this, he thinks, well, I can sell her for money or keep her as a slave. But what does Moses say? Whose protection are we seeing in this instruction? God is protecting this woman from being taken advantage of. 
We go on to uh, the firstborn in verse 15. God is concerned about the firstborn. He knows that there are people in the land, men in the land that will have multiple wives. And when you have multiple wives, we have a situation like Jacob had with Leah and Rachel. In verse 15, he says, you have one of the wives there that is hated or loved less. They have borne him children, but the beloved and the hated. And if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, what do we do? Well, Leah, as we know, had the firstborn, Reuben, didn't she? You go back to think about Leah. She had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And Leah, however, was loved less than Rachel. So we see here instruction that would take care of a situation like that, don't we? Do we give the all the, the blessing to the firstborn or the firstborn of the loved wife? No, it's the firstborn, period, isn't it? Verse 16, it shall be in the day that he causes his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved the firstborn before the son of the hated, which is the firstborn. So the first marriage, God says, is the legitimate marriage the firstborn of that marriage is the one that would receive the blessing. So we see again here the protection. And you also think about the firstborn is that uh, which is given to God. The firstborn males, the firstborn animals that are given to God. They're dedicated to God. God is not wanting to corrupt that law in any way. He wants to keep that intact. Men may gather to themselves more than one wife. He's not saying that's okay, but he's saying that I want this law, the firstborn, to be to remain intact. Now verse 18. What if we have a rebellious son? We've already talked about that idea. What do you do if you have a rebellious son? Okay. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, that will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. You let it be known to the elders of the city. And this, they say, this is our son, our stubborn and rebellious son. Verse 20, he will not obey our voice. He's a glutton, a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. This is a case of discipline. We've seen discipline in the past weeks when it regarded idolatrous practices and things of that nature. And this is no less serious than that by God. God views this evil just as bad as he would idolatry. A rebellious son. I know our children didn't like us bringing this topic up when we were raising little ones. Every once in a while, we would try to get them in line by bringing this topic up. You know what they did to children in the Old Testament when they were rebellious and disobedient? But really the point was to try to get them to see how serious it is. Now think about 
a, a situation like this where we have a mix of we have a mix of discipline, we have a mix of a family, and we have a mix in the congregation, if you will. It can be a very volatile situation. So many times when we consider discipline, so many times, discipline involves family members. If a person is a subject of discipline, so often that person has family members at the congregation. And so many times, that complicates matters, I'll say. It complicates matters. But what we have here is an example of verse 19 is the parents are doing what? Are they taking a lead role in this situation? They are, aren't they? They're taking the lead in this situation, trying to resolve the situation because they're following God's instructions and how hard that would be. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that would be easy. That would be very hard, wouldn't it? But it is God's will nonetheless. We're seeing how serious sin is. And let's be careful when those discipline situations involve family, that we don't try to ignore it, sweep it under the rug, pretend it doesn't exist, cover it up. Let's be helpful to the situation. The last paragraph, verse 22 and 23, and perhaps this is brought up, if we have a rebellious son and... and some, maybe, I don't know if, if the subject comes up because of the discipline that is involved, hang him on a tree. I don't know if that's why this is brought up. But nevertheless, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt surely bury him the same day. In Galatians 3, verse 13, we see the application where he quotes this passage. He quotes this idea by saying, Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. And the application in Galatians 3 is, Who is it that took our curse upon himself? Jesus Christ, didn't he? He took upon the curse. The curse of the law is that, that we could not keep the works of the law. We could not take that. We could not do that. Jesus became the curse of the law and he was hung upon a tree and he embodies that upon the tree. He embodies that curse upon the tree. All right, chapter 21. Any other any thoughts as we close this chapter? see even in the verses that talk about the firstborn and the rebellious son the rights and the honor that are given to women. Uh, you think that the preserving that blessing for the firstborn would have been protection for that, for that individual's mother. Um, and then in the rebellious son 
just thinking about the fact that that son was expected to obey both the father and the mother. And I know the Bible oftentimes is stereotyped as something that is repressive of women, but I would imagine, especially at this point in time, that would have been pretty radical in giving women, even captive women, these, these kind of rights. Mm -hmm. Tying that together with last week's study about two or three witnesses, it's interesting that this would uh, fulfill that need to have two witnesses, wouldn't it? Have a mother and a father be uh, the witnesses to that rebellious son. And, and certainly, along with what you said, we see a lot of protection, and I'll go ahead and say it, for women in these chapters that we're in right now. A lot of protection for women. Any other thoughts? All right, chapter 22. What should one do when finding his brother's lost possession? Restore it. Take care of it and restore it. What would cause a damsel to be stoned to death? Fornication. I'm sorry. Fornication. Okay, fornication. Those found in adultery should receive what punishment? Death. Death. And the man forcing a betrothed damsel to lie with him would receive what? Death, Death as well. Okay, chapter 22. We are in a section now uh, where there are just various and sundry laws given in a very rapid fashion. The first one we deal with is a brother's ox in verse 2 or verse 1, rather, of chapter 22. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or sheep go astray and hide yourself from them. Thou shalt surely bring them again unto thy brother. If your brother's not near, you get to keep it, right? Finders, keepers, is that the rule? Whosoever finds it gets to keep it. Is that the rule that Moses is dictating? No. You need to, so you don't know whose it is, his, whose property this is. You keep it, you take care of it until what point in time? You find out. Perhaps you find out who that is. That's God's instruction. This is someone else's property. So we're looking at property rights in a lot of these chapters too. We're looking at God is protecting property rights. This is someone else's property. Thou shalt not see, verse uh, 4, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and hide yourself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. Is this a principle that we would see that we could find in the New Testament as well? It is, isn't it? It is a principle. A lot of these principles are. Verse 5, A woman that shall or shall not wear that which pertains unto a man, and neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For whosoever doeth these things is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. An abomination is something a very putrid stitch to go over to the dump and uh, get in the middle of all that garbage that's a stitch it's, you want to get out of there don't you that's what it is like to God to see a person that is not distinguishing the genders he's wearing a male is wearing females clothing and vice versa and you think about today when it's just rampant 
behavior this way. Verse 6, if a bird's nest chanced to be before thee in the way, you don't take the mother, you uh, take the, the young, you don't take the mother. Perhaps this is so they can reproduce. Verse 8, when you build a new house, make a battlement for thy roof. A lot of the houses in that day were flat and you could go up onto the housetop as Peter was upon the housetop in Acts chapter 10. Recall that? Acts chapter 10, he was upon the housetop. And, but here again, there's a protection, if you will, or a liability on the edge of your housetop if you don't put a guard or a rail there to protect people, they might fall off. So it's a liability issue that God is taking care of here. Interesting how many things that God gives us. God gives unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You think about a passage in a verse like that. God gives us so many instructions about things that pertain to life and to godliness that we don't even realize or comprehend. Don't sow two different kinds of seed. Verse 9 through 11. Make borders of or fringes upon your garments. And I think this is the outer garment in verse 12. In verse 13 through uh, 13 through 21, we have the uh, some laws that pertain to chastity. If a man takes a wife and uh, takes upon himself a wife, verse 13, and finds out that she was not a virgin, there's issue there that needs to be resolved. If she is a virgin, then he must pay a fine. Verse 19, thou shalt fine him a hundred shekels of silver. Give them unto the father of the damsel, because he hath brought up an evil name upon the virgin of Israel. But, verse 20, if it be true, if she is not a virgin, if this thing be true, then what happens to the damsel? He's taken out and stoned to death with stones. Again, dealing with the subject of chastity, or uh, maybe we might say a broader topic of uh, adultery. Verse 22 says, what happens if people are caught in the act of adultery? They're put to death. Put away the evil from you. And you think about some of these topics that we've seen here about the adultery. You go back to the, the Ten Commandments. There was a commandment that dealt with this. It says, thou shalt not commit adultery. We're seeing that very simple and very strong command elaborated on in various different ways here in these chapters. God said, do not commit adultery. And in fact, several times in these chapters, we're going to see items that could, we could hearken back to the Ten Commandments. This is one here, thou shalt not commit adultery. In verse 23, we have the occasion where one is taken advantage of, and if she's in the city and she does not uh, ask for help, cry out for help. And then we also have the occasion where if they're in the field, and cries out for help. Nobody's there to hear. And then in verse 28 through the end of the chapter, 
if a man find a damsel that is a virgin that is betrothed and lay with lay hold upon her and lie with her, they be found. Then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and then he'll take her for his wife, and they shall be married the rest of their days. So again, there's that idea of God's dealing with thou shalt not commit adultery here. Also dealing with the protection of the woman in situations like this where she's taken advantage of. Man, verse 30, shall not take his father's wife and shall not uncover his father's skirt. So he's dealing with issues of, of incest as well there. Okay, chapter 22. Any, any thoughts on chapter 22? We talked in the very, at the outset of chapter 22, the first few verses there dealt with, we talked about property rights. If a man finds an ox, uh, anything of that nature, what he's to do with it, if we tie that in with one of the Ten Commandments, which one would it be? Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. If we don't have that covetous nature in our heart and we see someone's property there that maybe we would say nobody knows about it. Nobody will know about it. I'll just take it. It'll blend in with my flock. But God dealt with it very pointedly with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. And here he's drawing, maybe elaborating on that in several different areas that we, it could affect our lives. Thou shalt not covet, and thou shalt not commit adultery. We've seen that here in this chapter. All right, any thoughts on chapter 22? Okay, chapter 23. We'll go ahead and uh, get into the text here in chapter uh, 23. Or let me go to the outline first. We have again some sundry laws that pertain to the people. Some of these, uh, as we've seen earlier chapters, pertain to the military expeditions and how they were to conduct that, conduct that procedure. In chapter 23, we have the assembly of the Lord dealt with. It is not in God's plan to have just anyone come into the assembly of the Lord. There, is, there are certain requirements that must be met. Here we see, first of all, in verse 1, the eunuch. Verse 2, the illegitimate child is not accepted into the assembly. Verse 3, the Ammonite and the Moabite. And going down to verse 7 and 8, we have also included the Edomite and the Egyptian. All of these, he says, are not to be in the assembly of the Lord. God is saying there are requirements that need to be met to be able to be a part of that uh, assembly of the Lord. And it makes me think of a passage such as Matthew 22, verse 11. There was an invitation that was given out to people that come to the feast. <clears throat> come and... The indication is nobody wanted to come, Matthew 22, verse 11, so the, it's broadcast into the highways and the byways. Matthew 22, verse 11. But even at that, we opened up the invitation to all who wanted to come. 
Does that mean in Matthew 22, 11 and the verses following that anybody can come under any circumstances and doesn't have to meet any requirements at all? He found one there that did not have on a wedding garment. And what happened to that person? He was cast out. He wasn't accepted. There are certain requirements we must meet to be included in the assembly. We have, let's broaden that to, to this point, we have a requirements that we must meet to be even in the kingdom of the Lord, don't we? And there are certain requirements we must meet to be a part of a body of God's people locally. We must adhere. That's why we have passages such as 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3 that we are to purify the church. There are requirements, and there were requirements back here, here in the days of Moses that people had to meet to be a part of the assembly of the Lord. And we have to meet those as well. We have to meet certain requirements. Certainly the requirements are different, but there are requirements nonetheless. We cannot just open it up and let everybody in. What a corruption and a defilement of the laws of God to allow that to happen. Now verse 9, when you go forth in the camp, there are certain times, in, if you look at the military camp itself, there are certain times where there is clean and unclean dealt with. God says, I want the camp to be clean. Verse 15, thou shalt not deliver unto his master a servant that has escaped from his master unto thee. You shall allow him to dwell with you. Perhaps he left and he escaped because he was in an oppressive situation. The last part of 16, verse 16 deals with that. He says, where it pleaseth him best, thou shalt not oppress him. Maybe it's the indication that he was being oppressed where he was. He sought refuge, and now he can find that with you. Thou shalt not oppress him. There should be no prostitute of the daughters of Israel. Verse 17, neither a sodomite. God says uh, in verse 18, I don't even want the money that they bring. I don't want that at all. It is an abomination in God's eyes in verse 18. Verse 19 and 20, you are not to lend interest or not to lend items to your brother with interest, your brethren of Israel. You're not to charge them interest. You can do that to foreigners, but not to your own brethren. These are, uh, again, we're talking about references to, to property and value, things that you lend to those. And when you vow a vow unto the Lord, verse 21 through 23, what do you do? If you vow, you keep it. You make a vow to God, you keep it. This is dealing with our integrity do I have to make a vow in the first place? No. No. God's dealing with that as well. He says you don't have to make a vow. But if you choose to make a vow, keep it. Then in verse 24 through 25, we're dealing again, I guess, with the property rights. If you go through your neighbor's field and you find some ears of grain there and you're hungry, what do you do? You can take it. 
The law here is you can eat of that, and the idea is don't start harvesting it with a bushel basket. Don't take your bushel baskets with you and start harvesting it. We, that would not be right, would it? That would not be fair and honest dealings. But as God, God is providing for your needs, if you're going through the field and you have needs such as this, then God is providing for that. Uh, Matthew 12, verse 1. You know somebody that took advantage of that ability? Matthew 12, verse 1. Jesus and his disciples took advantage of that opportunity to do so. Any thoughts on chapter 23. All right. Very good. That's all for tonight. And we will begin in chapter 24 next week. And I appreciate your thoughts and your participation.